I want to grapple with something that I have found in my own personal life and I've also observed in the lives of many other folks, a source of friction among the church and among God's people as we are seeking to fulfill the Great Commission and accomplish God's will on this earth. Have you ever felt with a brother or sister in Christ. I'm, I'm sure most of you have. Um, and sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes we experience friction just plain because of selfishness on our part or on their parts. Sometimes we experience friction because of foolishness, because of unbiblical perspective. Sometimes we experience friction um, because we think a whole lot more about ourselves than otherwise. But sometimes I have found that we experience friction in our working together with other believers because of our calling. You know, every one of us have been given a calling by God, and along with that calling comes the will of God for us. Along with that calling comes God's mission for our lives specifically, and for many of us, along with that calling also comes our gifting. And as all of us are seeking to fulfill the will of God and pursue His calling in operation with our gifts, many times we find ourselves staring across at somebody else who has a different calling, a different will, and a different gift, thinking, what in the world is going through your brain, my friend? Listen, admit it. Some of you pastors here in this room just don't get the evangelists, do you? Listen, some of you here in this room, whether it's a leadership gift or other, some other type of way that God has wired you to accomplish his will, that calling and that gifting comes with it many times a different perspective on sometimes the same tasks, the same goals. And those differences of perspectives that we can have can lead to a different emphasis priority and that different emphasis of priorities can lead to different methods and different practices that can sometimes cause us to experience conflict or friction that with those that God expects us to be working shoulder to shoulder together with to accomplish God's mission and to advance his kingdom on this earth. I want to look at an example of this kind of conflict in the book of Acts And chapter number 21. Um, For those of you that have studied the book of Acts, you'll know that the last half of the book of Acts or more is really focused on the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who was very Jewish, was very zealous about the Torah, about the temple, and about God's glory. But he came a point, and there came a point in time in his life when he realized that his list of things he thought he needed to do to get to heaven was insufficient, and he counted all loss to find salvation as a free gift through the death, blood, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Saul, according to Philippians chapter 3, came to Jesus so that he could rely upon him and him alone to give him forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And you'll know along with that conversion experience also came a call. And the call of God on his life was that he would be a light to who? The Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. And Paul wasted no time to give his life for the mission that God had saved him to accomplish. He 
Again, you, you know his life. There came a point when God clearly separated Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto God had called them to accomplish. And they set out on their first missionary journey. They began to preach the gospel and see Gentiles come to Jesus Christ. And though, as we heard in our missions conference a few weeks ago, uh, there was always a priority on reaching gospel and reaching them first. Paul would not hesitate. In fact, you could say it was the priority of his life and ministry to reach all men with the message of Jesus Christ. Paul went through his first missionary journey and he successfully met, led many hundreds and thousands of people to Christ. He planted dozens of churches throughout the northeastern Mediterranean rim. On his second missionary journey, God expanded his mission field to the region of Macedonia and Achaia, the Grecian peninsula. And he led people to Christ in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and probably a number of other places on that peninsula as well. However, one of the things that we begin to find, as evidenced by the Jerusalem Council and by the letter to the Galatians, was that there were two factions quickly forming within Christianity. There was a faction that had a Jewish flavor, uh, is probably the one way to say it, okay? There was a faction of people that was very zealous about the law. In their minds, they could not comprehend a Christianity that did not look like a temple-attending, synagogue-worshipping Jew. They could not even comprehend it. In fact, some of these folks had gone so far to demand circumcision and certain customs of the law to be required for salvation. I'm so thankful that at the Jerusalem Council, they hashed that out and they came to the biblical conclusion that none of those things are required for salvation. However, they did come out of that council with a few decisions and I really believe, and again, you can argue with me later if you'd like, but I believe that the purpose for some of these decisions were to preserve the integrity of the Jewish mission. Um, and again, there's a lot that I could say. There's a lot of study that I've, I've got behind that. But I believe a part of the decrees, so to speak, was so that these brand new Gentile baby Christians would not so offend the potential Jewish converts so as to effectively shut down all Jewish missions. Now, that being said, Paul continued on preaching the gospel as he had done before. And on his third missionary journey, um, Paul was on a very specific mission. Um, if you've studied the letters that were written during that third missionary journey, you will know that Paul was on a bit of a fundraising campaign. He was raising money. And I want you to know he raising money just because there was financial need. According to Romans chapter 15, there was a theological reason for this fundraising effort. As Paul went to the churches in Philippi, uh, again in Ephesus and, uh, and in Corinth, he was uh, trying to get the Gentiles to make a theological statement through their financial giving. And that theological statement was so thankful for our Jewish roots. We have debt towards those, the people of God, the nation of God, because through this people came our Messiah. And though we may not be Jewish, we want to put our money where our mouth is and thank them and show our desire to be at unity with those who maybe have even still more of the Jewish flavor 
within Christianity. Um, Paul, as he traveled, again, you can read his theological statements about it um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15. His prayer request for the Romans was that this offering would be accepted and that he would be delivered from unreasonable men. And his desire, I believe, was to try through this financial offering to mend the rift that he was perceiving between the Jewish flavor of Christianity that looked askance at the Gentiles and the, uh, you can say, the less Jewish flavor that didn't seem to have a huge appreciation for the Jewish faction of Christianity. And I don't want to overstate this too much, but I really do believe that Paul was coming into Jerusalem with a burden on his heart and a mission on his mind. Uh, Again, Paul also came here in this story that we're going to be looking at here in just a second, in spite of warnings that were given to him, and I don't have time to argue all of it. Some people think that Paul should not have come to Jerusalem. Um, Some people think that the Spirit of God warned him not to come. I personally am of the opinion um, that God did want him there, but God wanted him to make sure he was coming into Jerusalem with his eyes wide open to what was going to happen to him when he came. But that being said, Paul arrives in Jerusalem not only with a boatload of money, but with a group of delegates that were sent to ensure the safe delivery and integrity of that financial contribution that was coming for a theological purpose. Paul arrives in the city in spite of the warnings that were given to him, and he arrives in a very tricky situation. Um, One commentator said this is the situation he walked into. He said Paul's arrival in Jerusalem probably was in the spring of AD 56 or 57 during the procuratorship of Felix. Josephus describes this period of the mid-50s as a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another rose uh, to challenge the Roman overlords, and Felix brutally suppressed them all. This only increased the Jewish hatred for Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. It was a time when pro-Jewish sentiment was at its height and friendliness with outsiders was viewed askance. Considering public relations, Paul's mission to the Gentiles would not have been well received. That being said, I want us to begin our reading with that idea of the general setting of what Paul is walking into, understanding the mission that he had in mind, the reason why he was risking his life, the reason why he was defying warnings was to accomplish a vision that he had to accomplish his calling to reach the world with the gospel. Verse number, uh, let's see, we'll start in verse number uh, 15, uh, 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. Again, that's one of the reasons why I think Paul was in the will of God by heading to Jerusalem. This is Acts 21, verse 15. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So here they are, they arrive at Jerusalem. And by the way, Luke doesn't mention this in this particular part, but he was accompanied by other people and a whole entourage of people from uh, the, uh, the Gentile churches, like I said, that had came to accompany the offering. And remember, according to Romans 15, he's coming to present this money for the poor saints of Jerusalem to show them that the Gentile churches were, um, they were with them. They were for them, okay? 
So, verse number 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So here's the setting. Paul walks into wherever it was that the elders, uh, the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem had gathered, and he walks in. I imagine he probably brings his entourage along with them, and he says, hey, let me tell you some stories about what God has been doing out there in the mission field among the Gentiles. I'm sure he probably talked about the, in the jail at Philippi and how God saved the Philippian jailer. I'm sure he probably talked about what happened at Mars Hill in Athens. I'm sure he probably talked about the Corinthians and how much of a headache they were and yet how much God was working in their midst. I'm sure he probably talked about the great works that God did in Ephesus and how these people all were not just thankful for their Messiah. They were thankful for his Jewish roots and to show the gesture of their thankfulness. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if it was a chest, okay? I don't know if it was a check. Probably wasn't a check, okay? I don't know what form the financial offering would have bring, but I imagine, and though it doesn't say it, I imagine he probably said, and here is a goodwill gesture from them to you all to show how much we are uh, want to show ourselves uh, uh, as comrades in the gospel mission. Well, you would expect that the elders would be very grateful for that, right? You would expect they'd be pretty pumped by that, right? Wow, that's a great idea, Paul. That's amazing. Well, we do find that they were thankful uh, for what, uh, what the Lord had done. Look at verse 20. And when they'd heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thank you. Actually, actually not what it says. And saith unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. So question, these Jews that he's talking about, are they saved or lost? They are saved. He said, you see how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Let me just get you to understand this. Because of the tricky situation that was there in Rome, because the nationalism was at a height, because the Jews there in that city, and it seems to say, based on what the elders just said, not just the lost Jews, but the saved Jews also, because they were getting whipped up into this nationalism and this populism going on there in that nation, there was a suspicion of Gentiles in general. And they're saying, furthermore, Paul... They got their eyes on you. They've been hearing some of the things that you've been saying out there and some of the things you've been preaching. And there is a talking point that is going throughout our city about you, Paul. And these people have heard reports that you are anti-Jew and anti-law in the way that you're ministering out and about across the, uh, the Roman Empire. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Paul anti-Jew? Yes or no? No, not at all. Was he anti-law? Well, that's a little bit trickier of a subject. 
You know, throughout the book of Romans, and I know we've got many folks that are in the Romans class, Paul was trying to ride a very fine line in showing that the law was not sufficient to give someone eternal life. The law had a very limited function, and that limited function was uh, not only, uh, it was to show us our sin and to show us the fact that we cannot achieve eternal life on our own. The book of Galatians backs that up. It slams the door on any and all attempts we might make to achieve righteousness in our own strength and in our own power. And there was a truth to the fact that many of the Jews that were out there were assembling together and worshiping together with Gentiles. And because of many of the unique factors, especially the Roman church, where uh, the emperor sent all of the Jews out and the Jews left the church, and essentially you had a purely Gentile church, and then later on they were allowed back in and you had a bunch of Jews that came back into a church that had practically no Jewish flavor whatsoever. That's what I believe Romans 14 is all about, having them grapple with some of these issues, uh, these non-moral issues that they were experiencing friction about in their church. And I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, except to say one could certainly perceive some of Paul's teachings as being anti-law. Now again, I, I know Paul. Paul made it clear there's nothing wrong with the law. Right? Uh, the law is holy and it's good. So Paul tried to hedge his statements and tried to be theologically precise. But if there's anything that I've learned through both my own ministry and other people's ministry, no matter how much you hedge and no matter how theologically precise you need to, need to be, people will take some of your statements and make them say that which you never intended them for them to say. You know what I'm saying? Okay? Now, that being said, Paul arrives here. And he's coming on a very specific mission. Paul's passionate about the Gentiles. He wants to see the Jew-Gentile relationship, this rift that seemed to be forming, mended. And he thought this financial offering would really help at solving this problem. He arrives, brings his entourage, shows them the money and say, hey, here you go. And they say, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Oh, we got a problem, Paul. You're here. And people are talking. And what they're saying is that you don't like the Jew and you don't like the law and you're teaching people to forsake the law. And um, what are we supposed to do? Verse 22. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together for they will hear that thou art come. They're saying we've got a major problem. Listen, if you're in a meeting when we all assemble, the sparks are going to fly, Paul. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think they said this but I imagine they thought it. As much as we rejoice in what God's doing, you are making our ministry here very difficult. And it would probably be easier if you weren't here. Let me ask you a question real quick. Who was Paul's target mission field? Who? Gentiles. Who were these elders' target mission field? The Jews. And what you have is two callings. Two mission fields, two different priorities. And right here at this time, both groups of men are trying to accomplish the will of God on earth and trying to do that which God had called them to do. And it seems like at this point, they are coming into conflict. Do you see it? Do you see it? So um, we've got a problem here. 
Um, uh, Let me continue reading the quote I started reading earlier. Considering public relations, Paul's mission to the Gentiles would not have been well received. The Jerusalem elders were in somewhat of a bind. On the one hand, they had supported Paul's witness to the Gentiles at the Jerusalem council. Now they found Paul a persona non grata, a um, non-welcomed person, uh, and his mission discredited not only among the Jewish populace, which they were seeking to reach, but also among their more recent converts. They did not want to reject Paul. Indeed, they praised God for his successes. Still, they had their own mission to the Jews to consider. And for that, Paul was a distinct liability. In other words, Paul came to mend Jew-Gentile relations. But his very presence, and with his reputation preceding him, whether fair or not, was jeopardizing the very goals he had come to receive. Um, And I just want to say this. Paul was stepping amongst a group of people who didn't share his exact and precise calling and therefore had different passions and priorities. So how were they to resolve this situation? How do they deal with it? Um, This was clearly a problem. Definitely. Um, The two callings were coming into conflict, and so the pastors, uh, the elders of the church in Jerusalem um, came up with a potential solution. And what they said in verse 23, they said, Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As such, in the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So here, what they're saying is, hey, Paul, we've got a solution for you, all right? We've got a solution. Here's the solution. We got these four guys that are about ready to finish what many scholars believe to be their Nazarite vow. And there's an offering that's actually required for them to complete that vow. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the temple and I want you to go the purifica- do the purification ritual. So wash yourself clean from all that dirty dealings you've had with the Gentiles. And I also want you to pay for these men's purification uh, for the re- remainder of their vow. And I think if you do that, it will send a message loud and clear to everybody here in Jerusalem that you're not anti-Jew and you're not anti-law. Sound good? Well, apparently, he thought it sounded good enough. One of the things I love about Paul is that he was adaptable. He was a man who was willing to sacrifice his rights for the sake of gospel. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 9 sometime. He said to the Jew, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. And he was willing to limit the exercise of his rights or even of his freedom in Jesus Christ in order to reach people with the gospel. And what we find is that uh, the, the leaders said, if you do this, it will help the public opinion. They were trying to preserve their ability to minister to their community. The itinerant preacher coming in was a liability to that, and yet they gave some recommendations for how he could resolve this conflict. And they said, by the way, we're not reneging on what we said at the Jerusalem council. Verse number 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one 
of them. So what happened here was this. Paul shares his report and the elders rejoice, but they come back with their own perspective. Your ministry and your theology are making our mission very difficult. Uh, One commentator suggests that the elders were well-meaning but deeply worried men who knew that if they appeared to countenance Paul by accepting the Gentile church's gift, it would prejudice their mission to the Jewish people and their influence with their own flock. They asked Paul to make a concession, and their proposition was to go through with its offering. Now, if you study throughout the rest of the book of Acts, what you will find was Paul, by following their advice and counsel, put his entire mission, his entire calling, essentially on hold for years. You say, what are you talking about? Well, he went to the temple, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but at the end of the whole purification ritual, some people showed up from those churches in Asia, uh, I believe probably the churches near Ephesus, trouble, they were lost in thorn and pride, and they saw Paul, and they began to speak bred some slander about him that he'd brought people who weren't supposed to be in the temple into the temple. They fomented a riot. They were captured by the centurion. Paul was rescued, actually, by the centurions while he was being beaten. One thing led to another. He ended up in Caesarea as a political prisoner. He ended up appealing, finding himself in house arrest in Rome. And if you were to look at that, it'd be real easy to think, Paul should not have listened to those pastors. Paul should have just done what God had called him to do. And frankly, theologians and commentators argue about whether he should have done it or not. And I'm not necessarily here to answer that question except to say this. You will find yourself in conflict with other people's callings as well. In Paul's situation, God is good. And I do believe that Paul did what he believed to be the right thing to do there in that moment, and God honored him for his step of faith. Whether the pastors, the elders in Jerusalem were operating out of fear, whether they were doing the right thing and giving right counsel, I do not know. But I do know this, Paul wanted to reach as many people with the gospel as possible. Paul was willing to sacrifice his rights to do whatever was necessary so the gospel uh, cause could be furthered and advanced. And in the process of it, it messed his plans up something awful. Yet when you find Paul talking to uh, his, uh, his converts in Philippi in the book of Philippians, he references what had happened in this whole thing. And he says, I would you know, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. We find that Paul had a free heart and believed that God had allowed this to happen, not only to inspire other people to preach the gospel themselves, but potentially to give him a hearing before the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, the actual emperor, (laughs) to give the gospel to him. And what we find is Paul is not a man who's bitter and angry and resentful at following the advice of those men, but Paul recognized that the hand of God was bigger than any conflict of calling, that the will of God was greater than what could have been fear-filled men, but that God was in control of his harvest field and his men, and that he could trust him with whatever he was doing That being said, I want to apply this to us here a little bit today. Listen, I want to say that every one of you here in this room have a calling. 
What is a calling? A calling is, a, is God's customized life purpose. It's the will of God for you. Included in that calling might be your scope of ministry, your target mission field, your particular gifting. And that calling will shape your priorities and the perspective with which you view ministry. Sometimes, as we've seen, your calling and another person's calling will lead to different conclusions on how something should be done. In the case of Paul, we see two perspectives. We see on the one hand the local perspective, and that was that of the elders in Jerusalem, James and the other elders. Their viewpoint was their church and their local community. And as much as they rejoiced for all that God was doing beyond their local community, frankly, that was not their calling. And in a certain sense, they didn't care. That's overstating it just a little bit, okay? But really, their priority and their passion was the people right there. And as far as they believed the will of God, the elders believed they needed to do whatever they had to do to reach and retain influence with those people in their community. I call that the local perspective. Paul, however, had another perspective. His was the broad Gentile perspective. Paul wasn't so much as much as he cared about what would happen in any one local church. His mind and his vision, his burden and his passion was much broader than any single local church or any one community. He was seeing things in terms of the overall patterns, the bigger landscape, the bigger picture. His concern wasn't so much what happened in Jerusalem, but what happened between the Gentiles and the Jews throughout the entire empire. That was his perspective and the local perspective and the broad perspective sometimes don't always see eye to eye. So, and I just want to say this, the problem is not in having one of these perspectives or the other, but it's in dismissing the other perspective as unimportant. Um, if I could phrase it this way, we need people with a local perspective the pastors, men in this room, that is their calling, to have the local perspective. Their primary calling is their community and to reach them with the gospel. But there is also a broader perspective. Other folks, missionaries who may be out and about, evangelists who may have a broader perspective on the overall movement. They're thinking not about any one local church, but many local churches. And these two perspectives are essential. The gifts are essential for the health and forward movement of the church of God. The church is a body and there are different parts in the body and each part is essential and important for the head to accomplish its will on this earth. The problem comes, not that there are differences of perspective. The problem comes when, say, the broad perspective misses the local perspective. It says, you know what? I don't care what any pastor says. I'm going to preach how I'm going to preach. I don't care about how this affects your community. I'm just going to do what God has called me to do. Amen? Don't say amen. I would call that the hyper-broad perspective. To take this on the other side, 
I think there's also a problem when someone is so tunnel vision focused on just their community that they refuse to see or consider the broader perspective of what could happen. And I would call that the hyper-local perspective. See, the problem is not in having a local perspective or a broad perspective, but it's being dismissive of the other perspectives. The local and broad is just one example of many different kinds of dichotomies that we can find in, of perspectives within churches and within Christianity. What are some other perspectives? How about this? Crisis versus process. Crisis versus process. There are some folks, some callings, and some giftings that really are focused on the moment of crisis. I think most of us would think of an evangelist as a crisis-focused gift. An evangelist comes into a church, and what they're burdened and passionate about is seeing decisions happen tonight, this week. When it comes to preaching the gospel, the thing that gets an evangelist up in the morning is not just teaching them the next thing about the gospel. It's bringing them face-to-face with a decision of faith in Christ alone, or they'll die and go to hell because they've broken God's holy law. The evangelist is not content with just teaching or having influence or help somebody grow as much as that is a part of discipleship in the Great Commission. But the passion of the evangelist is the crisis. Get right with God now. Don't work at it. Don't try at it. Don't make a goal five weeks from now to be right with God. Now. But the process side of things, <clears throat> the process side of things would, could, it focuses on the long-term growth and development. What all of us really do need, uh, there are aspects to life and ministry that cannot happen via a crisis. There are aspects to our uh, pilgrimage of sanctification that frankly aren't solved in a moment. There are aspects to our growth that take time, that take intentionality. But what can happen? Listen, both of those aspects are required in the church. The problem is when one is dismissive of the other. Listen, it's a major problem if a crisis man is to say, man, I don't care about all that growth stuff. All I care about is decisions right now and today. That's a problem. That's a problem. But you know what? It's likewise just as much of a problem for a process person to say, well, you know what? All we care about is development. And you know those crisis people, they're just flash-in-the-pan people that really don't care about the long term. And to be dismissive or diminishing of the crises. Listen, every gospel encounter is a crisis. And as much as I want for there to be long-term ministry as a result of what's happening this next weekend, there better be some crises out in that village. There better be some crises there in that auditorium, some crises of faith. If all we've done is given people something to think about, if all we've done is challenge their thinking and maybe nudge them a little closer to the salvation decision, as much as there might be some people that are just fine and dandy with that, I'm not. <laughs> because my passion is the crisis. Let's see them get saved. And listen, sometimes the crisis Perspective can sacrifice long-term ministry for the sake of a decision right now, but sometimes a process person can sacrifice the decision right now to retain the relationship and influence. I'm trying to tell you, your calling and your gifting is going to determine your passion and your priorities. 
And I want you to know your passion and your priorities is an important part of this local church. And God is going to use your passion and your priorities, but we need to work together with other people that have other passions and priorities and not be dismissive of other people that have a different perspective than we do. Uh, Again, I've got so much more than I could say, but let me just say this here. How do we resolve this conflict? How do we work together? Just a couple of points, and you can write these down, and I'm just going to have to give them quickly here. Strive for understanding. Strive for understanding. Sometimes we can look across to somebody, and I'm sure there have been times in staff meetings where people look at me and think, Where in the world is Bobby Bosler coming from? And to be honest with you, there are sometimes I look across at a pastor I'm talking to here on staff here, and I'm thinking, what in the world? I don't even understand you. Okay? Seek to understand. Oftentimes, we can dismiss and delegitimize things that we do not understand. That is not maturity, and that is not how God designed the church to operate. Seek understanding. Don't delegitimize. Don't demean. Don't diminish. Secondly, you need to obey the Holy Spirit. You need to obey the Holy Spirit and listen to the head. Pastor Van mentioned earlier that we are the body of Christ and we need to be in tune with our head. Listen, your head controls all of your body parts, or at least it ought to. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with that body part. And I'm telling you, God has designed all of us to work together in a way that is good. God wants the process people. God wants the crisis people. They are all essential to the forward movement and health of the church. Be a gentleman. Be respectful to other people. Be a team player. Be willing to defer at times the way you see things to the way other people see things. Humble yourself. Don't convince yourself that your way of seeing things, your perspective, and your calling is more important than anyone else's. Resist polarization and partisanship. Communicate. And trust God to work. The situation with Paul in this setting and in this particular moment of friction, whether it was the right thing to do or not, Clearly, Paul was trusting the Lord to work it together for good. And clearly, God did work it together for good. God used it, we believe, according to Philippians chapter 1, to bring the gospel before Caesar himself. We don't know what happened. Specifically, God used it to bring about more preachers of the gospel. And I want you to know, God also wants to use the Conflict that we might feel at times between different callings and giftings and perspectives. God wants to use those as we all humbly listen to the head to do what he could never do if we were all one gifting and had one perspective. I suppose what I'm calling you to do here today, there may be some here in this room, you have been being demeaning about other giftings and callings. You've been talking about the music program in a way that is dismissive because you don't really value the process they're working Maybe you're here and you're a part of the music program and there are other people that you think are naive and dumb in the way they handle things. And you yourself have been involved in negative, proud, demeaning talk. Can I tell you? You are the problem. I've been the problem before. But listen, if you're doing those things, you're the problem. And I want to challenge you, instead of your eyes fixated on a personality, 
compartment. Or instead of getting your eyes fixed on what you perceive to be a short-sighted perspective or fear or unbelief or whatever it is, seek that understanding. Humble yourself. Listen to your head, Jesus. And depend on God to weave these things together for great good and for the forward movement of the gospel.